Welcome to Paradigmatic Silences. I'm your host, Michael Essien. If you like the content shared on Paradigmatic Silences, please follow or subscribe to the podcast. Episode 12 is part two of a conversation between four black educational leaders sharing their experiences and challenges in education. If you did not listen to part one, you can pause here and listen to episode 11 to hear the beginning of the conversation. Let's get into part two of the conversation with the group I call the Southeast Alumni Black Leadership Association. Enjoy. What conversations do we need to hold in order to make a difference? What has to change for us in terms of the conversation? Not just like inside of schools where we are situated as leaders, what needs to change? And it's not just for us, because if we throw a dart on a map, wherever it lands, if there's a school with black, with black students, Latino students, and we're talking about uh, with black leadership, uh, they're going to be going through some similar things. So what needs to uh, change? What conversations need to be held? I, I may just dump in there just to say quickly, there are some institutional policies yeah. that need to be looked at seriously. Um, I may not be serving the southeast side, but I'm close enough where I live over here where I can see where my tax dollars actually go when I pay my property tax and see how much of it is actually going towards schools and support. There's this many different levels of it that has to be changed for um, so our schools are not neglected. They receive all that they should receive from the policies that that are put in place. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. But that's where we could start at is some of the things that's been laid out. I I think that I think that um, I always revert to relating things to sports. Um, so if you if you if you ever find a a city that has a extremely strong or a powerhouse in basketball or football or track, then you'll often find that there is a Pop Warner program that feeds into the middle school that feeds into the high school where the kids are learning the same system, uh, the coaches are coaching with the same terminology, and the kids are receiving the same uh, content year in and year out. So then when they get to the high school level, uh, it's clockwork, and they're doing the same thing that they've been taught. So now it's just applying, and now the only thing that they're, they're improving on is getting bigger, getting stronger, uh, and, and developing a higher IQ. Now, how does that relate to education? I feel like in education, um, and again, speaking from the perspective of being at an elementary school, and now in middle school, and being at a high school, you only earn credits at high school. Which, in middle school, if kids had to earn credits, it would make more sense to them because the majority of the black and brown kids I'm going to rephrase that. The majority of the students that end up at continuation schools are black and brown kids. And they get there because they don't fully understand the concept of you have to earn credits to graduate high school. So they, the first two years, they do not perform well for whatever reason. Then by their junior year, you know the saying, I'm going to do well now. I'm on junior. I need to get ready to graduate. Well, you already 100, you already 50 credits behind. So now you have to go to continuation. 
So going back to the to the football comparison or sports in general, I feel like if there was some grading policy and system that held kids and staff accountable from elementary school to middle school to high school that was in sync, then at least the kids would know and there's no surprises. Yeah. Right, I'll, I'll jump. Oh, go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I'll jump in and say, you know, a few things. On one hand, the conversation, I'll say that the largest conversation we need to have is our complacency and our acceptance with the outcomes, right? Um, mm -hmm. We expect it because we're okay with it. Yeah, that's that's not necessarily it doesn't have to be the four we sitting here. That's the big we, right? That's and, and we accept it because it fits a model of white supremacy and it fits a model of anti-blackness and it fits a model of black people being inferior. Now, if because if it was flipped, people be losing their shit. Yep. If all of a sudden in San Francisco, we just keep it in San Francisco. If our Chinese families and our white families all of a sudden were at the bottom with the outcomes, people would be losing their fucking mind. <laughs> and something true. would be wrong and something sure as hell would be fixed immediately if that was the outcomes. Because in the mental model, that's not supposed to be happening, right? Um, yeah. uh, now, be now, because we're so complacent with that, we don't, we're not really interested in changing it that much because that's okay, right? For the big system. Now this other, and now we understand that because the, the system is set up for certain students to succeed and we see it over and over and over again, right? So to Charleston's point that it's cool to test kids, but let's make sure we test them on something that matters to them. Not just because someone wrote it down in the standard book in the state of California, but you know, if, if we actually change the standards and we change the curriculum, we change the pedagogy that puts black students at the center. And that, and if we were to say, we're not sure what's gonna happen with everybody else, but we know black students are gonna succeed and we saw what happened then, then maybe that would be a different conversation. But we continue to push our black students to the margins. We continue to say, you know what? We're not gonna change the classroom situation, but you can get a to therapist though. We're not going to change the, the curriculum, though, but you can get a tutor outside of here, though. I'm not going to change my practices, though, um, but, you know, you can get your shit together and then come back when you're ready, right? As long as we're doing that, we're going to have the same outcomes, right? Um, and then the last right. thing, and that's an issue of mindsets, right? We believe that Black people are inferior, right? And we believe that people who speak English as a second language are inferior, then we will do everything to, to, to create those outcomes. And that's the whole we, right? A whole system, right? Um, and now, the last thing I'll say is this, our system is set up for certain students, to, certain students to succeed. And we're talking about policy, right? So our student assignment policy is set up for families with uh, privilege and families with money and access. And if they don't have the money, they got enough knowledge to know how to game the system in their, in their benefit. So therefore, you can go to the school you want to go to and they know how to game the system and they've been doing it long enough and winning because of that. And other folks who don't know or don't believe they can are losing through that system, right? Those yep. are the policies, right? When those policies shift, 
Um, the fact that we allow these private schools to continue to run in our city and be in our city, take the money from the city, but keep the money in their pockets in the city, um, not just in their neighbors and their houses, but now in their private schools and to create us as an underclass in a public school system. That's policy. That's city policy. Right. Um, because that's serving the folks who are winning. Right. Yeah, um, I go on and on, man. But you know, it's totally agree. Hey, hey. So uh, I'm gonna lean in on this too, and I'm gonna go back to the football uh, analogy. So uh, Charles and I, we we both play football, so that that's why we we can deal with the whole team concept too, right? But I couldn't imagine showing up to a game day and people watching the game. And receivers don't know how to run routes. <laughs> Running backs don't know how to hit the hole. They don't know how to carry the ball. Quarterbacks don't know how to throw. Team don't know which way to run. Like, like people would say, like, well, what's going on with the coach, right? Yep. And if nothing was fixed with the coach, then people start like, what's going on with the GM? What's going on with the manager, the general manager, the owner, whatever the case may be. So here's the thing where uh, I agree it's around the acceptance of the inferiority. Like we are accepting the narrative and nobody's pushing the counter narrative. How do you get a kid who's sitting in any elementary class and that kid goes through kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade and arrives at a middle school and yes. is reading at a second or third grade level. Yes. Uh, what? Was like, what happened? Okay. Now that kid, you know, we're talking about the K-12 experience. Now that kid is at the middle school and the middle school has that child for three years. The middle school doesn't address the issue either. The kid goes through six, seven, eight, and is passed on the high school because, you know, Charleston, uh, what you shared was the credits don't count until you get to high school. Mm -hmm. Now you get into high school, and this is where we start to, you know, people got data. Uh, we can look at a, attendance data from the fifth grade. Um, we can look at Bs and Fs um, that the kid received in middle school, and we can draw conclusions that they will end up being dropouts out of high school. And it's not that those things are indicated that be dropout out of high school, those indicators are showing how the K-12 system has produced them, right? Mm. And because we do not have the counter narrative that says this black child, this Latino child, this Pacific Islander child will be educated. And if that kid cannot read, who is going to be responsible? We're going to identify that person, and that person is going to teach that child to read. But going back to the bigger picture, the system, the way it's designed, it's not designed to support those children. <clears throat> and so the counter narrative is not strong because the narrative is running real strong. As we think about um, one of the things that always uh, struck me as, as odd is uh, we, we all work in a school district that is what the number one performing large school district in the state of California. But uh, we work at school sites that aren't part of that narrative. And then when you begin to think about, well, then what kinds of conversations are being held around 
the support to make sure that the schools that we run can become part of that bigger narrative. And I do believe that there's a challenge uh, when it comes to all of those things that were mentioned around policies and resolutions and where your tax dollars are going and how the systems are set up, that it becomes a clear thing that maybe the schools that we're in, that they're designed to be the way they are and being innovative, trying to change is literally the problem and not the solution. And so this is where I think um, when we start uh, the conversation we're not holding, we're not holding the conversations on the context of why our schools exist and what do we do, what do we need to do to change them? And when I say our schools, I'm talking about our middle schools and elementary schools are situated in a continuum. So my school is not isolated. Don't look at me as a middle school. Look at me as a K-12 experience for kids who are in the Southeast section. How do we change that? Because the counter narrative for the children that we serve is definitely not strong. And that impacts us as leaders because we're trying to promote the counter narrative. Uh, let me say one more quick thing, Mike. The conversation we're not, this conversation we're having right now, when's the last time we had a conversation like this? We, now we, <laughs> we are, but when's the last time this was uh, important to somebody else, right? Like when's the last time that folks pull leaders together to say, okay, or even educators, right? Even educators who've been in the game 10, 20 years to say, what have you seen in 20 years as what needs to happen? And let that shit be the policy. And that's us, right? Let alone, uh, you know, we have, yeah. some, we have some privilege because we got some degrees, right? And we have some, some experience in here, but like even to bring black families together and say, what do you need, right? And what, how should it be? And let that be the curriculum. Let that be the center. That's the conversation, right? We're at, we're busy um, putting out fires, playing whack-a-mole, right? Um, right. But the question is not what would it take for you to stop playing whack-a-mole so you can actually get busy, right? That's the conversation, right? You know, I, I had a conversation with um, um, uh, uh, some somebody recently that I won't necessarily name, but what I said is um, when I visit these other schools on the other side of town, I'm reminded of what's going on sometimes i forget right being in my, my 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 the southeast area and when i go there i'm interested in why is this happening here and not at my school and then i go to what would it take for my students not to be compliant robots per se right and to do whatever this teacher says because i don't think that's the answer but for my students to be winning just like the students are winning on the other side of town i'm yeah. interested in that question right what would it take for my students and who I don't care where they came from, I don't care what they're dealing with, for them to be winning at the same rates? And now let's build that system. Anything else is bullshit. Anything else is incremental change. And we're gonna be in the same place 40 years and you know, par paradigmatic paradigmatic silence part two with, with the kids, our children talking about it. They're gonna be having the same fucking conversation 40 yep. years later, the same thing with some incremental change. But this question of what would it take? For us to be on that same level, not acting white, not um, um, letting go of our culture and letting go of who we are, but for us to be winning with the skills that we need and still have a strong sense of self to do it all. What would it take? Now, let's fight for that. Let's restructure everything for that. Everything else is for the birds, you know? Yeah, on the real. On the real. But I, I, 
I wonder, well, not even wonder, like, <clears throat> like the barriers to the conversation, thinking about uh, how to engage parents around these conversations, because I do know parents can, can get things done. But even in the, the communities that we serve, like parents, it's really a big challenge to get parents to uh, show up in a way to advocate for the things that uh, we're talking about, right? Or we can flip the script and begin to do things in a completely different way, right? Thinking about really getting some changes and then just having your budget completely undercut, right? That is a systemic thing. Like that's not a, that's like, that's not a, uh, that's not something that a decision that you make at the school site is determining the outcomes. Right. But I, I do think that these larger conversations on funding um, resources that are required to actually make real change. I'm not talking about, uh, we have a weighted student formula that's going to give you X amount of dollars. Like, do you really think these dollars are going to change the outcomes for our kids? And if not, so then what are we talking about then? If you know I need three counselors to do the job, why are you giving right. me money for a 0.5? That's what I'm talking about. Right? I need a literacy coach or I need I need all of my teachers taught to teach literacy. Why aren't there any trainings on teaching literacy? Like these are these are some like some very significant things that are important and that's like this is where the game comes in and I think this is where uh, like the narrative piece where because uh, they're winning on certain sides of the city and not on others, that it's really not a priority, right? Just the inferiority. Um, we, we tend to limit our conversations for black and brown students to discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, which leads us into some of our roles early on in administration, which goes back to what I said earlier about putting many um, black men in, in the roles of pupil services, um, roles of discipline, and it goes on and on because once you become that site leader as joe was talking about once you understand all aspects of what it is to be a leader in that school then they're ready to shut you down because now you got i understand what it is that i need and this is what you have to give me in order to achieve what you see for our students and what you see for our families and so the narrative to me is always going to be about how do we get the things that we know we need from our perspective, from from the perspective of black men leaders knowing what it is that we can move our families and our students in the right way and having those conversations with with our leaders. I, I think as long as there's an, uh, I won't call it an achievement gap now. I don't know what they want to call it. They can call it whatever they want to. As long as there's some group that's not succeeding, I think in districts, large, small, wherever that's at, that's always holding somebody else's job, right? And so somebody downtown will have a job as long as those students are not achieving. And so we have to find a way to get more for those students. And they put different people in these positions or different uh, central office employees in positions so they can support those schools on the southeast side because those schools need some additional support from central office, not from the perspective of, the human capital at the at the site levels, but that's just my two cents. <laughs> well, you're spending that two cents all over the place, my brother. It's, it's all good. Andy. It's all good. Uh, 
any any further comments before we transition to uh, this next question? All right. So no. now, now we've come through these variety of questions. Uh, we've talked about our own personal journeys, our experiences, what the conversation should be. Uh, now thinking about uh, leadership, um, what advice do you have for current and future leaders of color who are going to walk into all of the stuff that we just talked about um, previously? Um, what should they know and what should they do? They should know that it is not easy. <laughs> in, no, in no way, shape, form, or fashion is it easy. <laughs> because everyone, when you are on the site, is looking for the site leader to have not an answer, but the answer. Mm -hmm. And they're not often given <laughs> much uh, think time to you to come up with the answer, but you still have to like figure it all out in the in the moment. Um, the other thing I would say is uh, you you will definitely definitely need a balance because you can consume yourself with the work. You can drown yourself with the work and that is not going to benefit the students or the school site that you are supporting because if you're no good because you're too tired or drained out or, 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 then you're not going to be beneficial. You're not going to be supporting your teachers. You're not going to be supporting the family. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a juggle. It's, it's, it's constant juggling, constant juggling. I, I would jump in there and just say, um, be mindful of of your health and your and your wellness, and how do you how do you plan on taking care of your of yourself in this work? Because there are going to be some days that's going to be a little bit more stressful than even you think you can handle. And so, before you jump into this, make sure one you really want to be a site leader, and two. Make sure you, as Charleston said, man, you make sure you have a balance. But balance that other part off with with family, prayer, some of this. But make sure you have, keep up on your health, particularly as black men. We have to really be mindful of that. And that's only my perspective of somebody who, who survived uh, colon cancer and, and the movement around from different parts of the city and seeing a lot of different things happen. So yeah, just, just have that balance as Charles and just say, but make sure one of those balances is somewhere where you have the wellness of your family that you keep in, in, in the perspective of what it is. So this, they don't take you out. We don't want to be taken out because we didn't, we didn't take care of ourselves and, and they didn't let the stress get to you. I'll jump in and say, you know, I think it, you can never have enough mentors and enough colleagues that you trust that. that that are going to that are going to have your back, but also push you, right? Because you need people that are going to push you that have, um, um, you know, the right orientation in this work too, right? Um, so definitely mentorship and support, 
so that you're not really doing it all alone. Um, I think like um, we got to be, oh, man, we get, we get, we get convinced that we got to play the game for a long time. You know, you're told like, Oh, you got to wait for a minute. Then you can really start using your vision and you can really start being honest. And I would say, you know, my advice is things started moving when I stopped waiting um, when I stopped trying to be too strategic and I started being more honest and I started being more explicit about what I was talking about, um, whether that's with my staff or with students or with my supervisors in the district. Um, so don't wait, you know, don't wait too long. Don't wait. Don't wait ever. Because, I mean, you as a person of color, you have an incredible insight into uh, racism and therefore anti-racism. That also being said, you know, don't sleep on the fact that you, we have all internalized racism, both um, in our own messages about ourselves, but in also what we're supposed to be doing with children. Um, and we could be doing just as much harm as um, white folks um, with our children. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that we have not been co-opted into the system and thinking that just because we are brown, uh, we got it all figured out because that's not not that is not the case. Um, um, other piece of advice is, you know, don't don't think for a second that um, folks won't flip on you um, and leave you hanging because, um, uh, you know, like I said, you play the game, you're winning and you could be the golden boy. Right. But you start speaking some truth and all of a sudden you could be out. Right. And people don't want to talk to you no more. So don't don't think that um, you ever your position is ever solid because um, our system is set up for racist outcomes. So that means that once you start calling that out, um, people aren't going to want to hear that. Um, so just know that, right? You, so that, that doesn't mean be scared. Um, that just means know what you're dealing with, right? So be, be intentional, build your team up so you got some backup. Um, and, you know, wherever you are, you, you know, you don't, you don't got to stay nowhere forever, you know? If you're not being loved, you're not being appreciated, and you're not feeling sustained in the work, you can go somewhere else. There's children everywhere. It's brown children everywhere. You don't got to die in no job and you don't got to be subjugated in no job either. Um, Mike, what you got to say, man? What's your advice? Um, got, <laughs> so I'm, I'm co-signing on everything that, that people have shared here. Um, but I also think uh, more times than not how we're, we're taught um, as educators, um, like we're coming in and we're going to be these superhumans, superman, superwoman. It's going to solve the problem. Like I'm going to figure it out by myself yeah. and mm -hmm. not understanding the nature of the opponent that you're facing. All right. And I got, like I said, I always see things in terms of uh, the game of football. And if you're going up uh, back in the day when I was coming up, if you're going up against Nebraska, Nebraska was bigger than everybody else. You couldn't go at Nebraska with a power game. Right. You got to come up with something else because when Nebraska rolled in and played you, when they left, you were looking at the injury toll. You were looking at who's listed on the thing as far as injury. Concerned, right. You got to spread them out. You got to be quick and hit here and there. Right. And so I do think uh, that means that one, you need to be able to assess your opponent and what the opponent's strengths are and what their weaknesses are. And then you also need to be able to assess your team. If you don't have one, then that's the first problem. You got to get a team. I heard you mentioned mentors, but not just like mentors who can help guide you through, but you need individuals where you're just like, man, let's just get together, man. So uh, we can chop it up how, how we, how we do it here. Uh, the four of us, 
because you have to be able to assess your own strengths and weaknesses, knowing where to apply uh, force, right? And then I, I think not only being able to assess the uh, opponent and your own strengths, but then what is your mission or vision for changing these outcomes? And then how do you get individuals on your team? Uh, I remember, and that's like, this is the nature of the job. It, the nature of the job is isolating. And um, I was at a, a national equity project uh, function <laughs> up in what Sonoma and uh, Mark Salinas was my group leader and we were talking. So I was sharing some stuff and he brought up uh, crushing people with your urgency. Right. And, and I never even heard that just the, even the whole concept of crushing people with my urgency. Right. And uh, he shared with me that um, if what you believe is good for students and for teachers and for parents, then how do you get people on your team? Right. And that was a complete reframing for me. Like instead of fighting, like, Oh, you need to get people on your team. And so then that's a completely different thing. So I do think that people need to be aware of, uh, the demands of the job. And when you come in, that it's not about you individually taking on the system. You do have to have a team. How do you build that team around you? And then how you assess your own strengths and weaknesses, because you're going to be engaged in a battle with a, with an entity that has not lost. Mm -hmm. And that's only yeah. real yeah. The entity has yeah. not lost. So my advice is uh, get your skills on, get your training on and make sure you got a team around you. Right. Mm. Stick and move, stick and move. <laughs> well, brothers, um, so we can go ahead and uh, uh, close this conversation out. Um, I don't know if we want to close out with um, a, maybe a favorite saying or something that drives you as a leader um, that sustains you. And then being able to say, like, how can people get in contact with you? All right, I'll jump in. Um, I'll paraphrase this quote, um, but I always come back to this quote from uh, Paulo Freire, which pretty much says you got you got two options in education. Right? Either either education is about preparing this generation um, to conform to the current state of society, right, and promote the status quo, or education is about preparing a generation to to transform it and blow it up. Um, and for me, you know, that's always what I come back to with, you know, you know, either we're, we're about keeping it the same or we're about changing it. and education is that same thing too, uh, just like child rearing is. Um, and I think as long as we come back to, to determining what we are doing as individuals, we can stay on that side of transformation. Um, um, as far as contacting me, you know, these days you can find me at the playground um, with the children. <laughs> you can chop it up while my kids are on the swing, in person at least, uh, in the distance, or in the cyber world. <laughs> you can find me. Uh, my preference is uh, the, the Twitter platform at Trust Leadership. I like, I like to do use a little profanity on there too. So if you like to do that, um, we could be friends. Wait, I'm definitely going to put explicit on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't, you know, I'm trying to think of what is, is there any one thing that, that just 
that just sticks? Like, is there a quote? Is there a person? Is there a it? And um, and and what is and something that would relate to everyone? And for me, I don't I don't know if I if I have the one thing that I feel everyone can say. Yeah, that's it. Um, but what I what I often go back to is I'm just thinking like you know. I just I, I always go back to sports, and I hate to be that 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 person that always does, uh, because not everyone can relate to sports, but everyone can relate to that feeling that you have when you do something, in whatever your passion is that is exceptional or great, and and it, and it just and that that feeling, whether it's you know, again, accomplishing something that hasn't been done before, whether it's in football and you're running through somebody or you make an amazing catch or you make the game-winning shot, like that feeling, that is the it that that keeps me rocking. That is that is it. It is that it is that feeling in that moment when you feel like I've done something amazing and it's going to have an impact. Um, yeah, so for me, that's it. And um, if you want to, if you want to reach out, you can email me at charleston.h.brown at gmail.com. And similar to Joe, I'll be at the place that as well. Baby <laughs> on the way. <laughs> you and Joe at the opposite end of the spectrum. Me and Stu. <laughs> <laughs> uh I don't know, man, at times. It's just so many different things I could think about when it comes to uh, quotes or things like, I don't know, there's a few that kind of always resonate. um, This past past week has been really inspirational for myself just to see my son um, earn his his degree and attending a, a historical black college and having both of my boys graduate from historical black colleges. It's something that I, you always think about and you always want to make sure that you you can support your children in, in that aspect. And um, there was something that was said by Dr. Sharaki Holly to, and when I was in a workshop uh, some time ago, it had to be about over a decade ago. And he was talking about he was mentioning that how do you change um, to make sure that your 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 children's children understand the importance of education, and that you have to have three generations get college degrees. And I was like, damn, three generations! And at this time, my boys were real young, and I was thinking about in order for them and for us to have this systemic change with even within my family, I have to have my boys get their college degree. I have one, my wife, and then because my mother and father weren't as fortunate enough to earn their degrees, and then their children will have to have and earn a college degree. And so that to me was like, that's that's just some something that I had never thought about until this past Saturday when I knew that now both of them had finished and they had and I had got two, we have two generations who have earned their college degrees. And I may not even be around to see 
the third, but they can tell the story about your granddad said that you have to be able to be educated in this country because that's 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 how we know that the system can start to change for us and you believe that education is for you and that you can achieve something through it. And so I just leave you with with that and saying that uh, a little learning indeed may bake may may be a dangerous thing, but the want of learning is a cumulative to any people. And so if we think about what we want for all of our children is to have the opportunity to be and that's the mindset that I've led with that all black children, all children of color should have this opportunity to have the education they want for themselves and where they see that at. And so I don't have, I do have all this Twitter page and all this stuff, but my kids set that shit up for me. <laughs> Is that why you don't be responding, Stu? <laughs> so when I go and look on that shit behind Twitter and this and all the rest of the stuff, I'm like, these cats can set this shit up for me and I don't even be responding to nobody. And so I guess the best thing always, if you really want to look out and just reach me, you could always just go through um, ESS22563 at gmail.com. And then you can find me. But I, I do have all that stuff set up. I just need to utilize that. But I'm not like you cats, man. I'm trying to get there. When you start, when you get closer to 60, you be like, man, I'm tired of all these shit, man. I'm just trying to get that professor shit going on. Okay, Dr. Stu. Yeah, yeah. We know about you, Dr. Stu. Yeah. Just trying to get to that perspective, man. Absolutely, and my brother. I just want to give a good shout out to my uncle and aunt for watching my boy down in Montgomery, Alabama, man. If it wasn't for my uncle Allen and my aunt Tommy, man, I don't know what I would have done the last three years while he'd been at, been at ASU. Come on, man. Put that first and last name out there, man, so people, if they hear, they know. Oh, that is my Uncle Alan Stewart, or Dr. Dr. Alan Stewart, and Dr. Tommy Stewart. Both of them are earned their PhDs and was rather happy that I got into a program because they've been sweating me for about <laughs> four or five years. I'm like, you need a doctor? And I'm like, no, nah, I just need to do some right shit that I don't get thrown out of nothing anymore. <laughs> Come on, man. Start those, a new family those, tradition, those, brother. Count a narrative. Family. I love them to death, man. I, 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 I can't overemphasize about having, and, and I know how you brothers feel about with those young babies that you have. I, I'm always be grateful for them that they have get the education they rightfully deserve. I think all of us should have that. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. Um, I have a brief, very brief story, and then I got to say. And I want to say when I got into this game of being an administrator after I got out of PLI, um, I'm sitting in the superintendent's office. It was it was somebody whose name was mentioned earlier. Richard Carranza is a superintendent. And I'm interviewing him. He's going to make a determination on whether I'm going to become an administrator in the district or not. And he asked me a question. Uh, well, actually, it was, he made a statement. He said there are two kinds of races in the world. They're the kinds that have white sheets over their head with holes in the front. And they're the kinds that let black and brown students sleep in the black back of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I was like, damn, 
I'm sitting in the super chat. I was like, Whoo. I was like, as soon as he said that, I was like, hey, I was released to do my work. That's <laughs> what I got released to do. And so here's my saying. Here's my saying. To this day, man, I will never forget that. Uh, my saying is, it comes from June Jordan. Love that lady. Powerful, powerful woman. We are the ones that we have been waiting for. That is something I carry around with me. Um, thinking about if something is going to change, who's supposed to change it? Instead of always looking outside or kind of looking to find somebody to do that work, like we are the ones. Um, and if you're standing in a space and you don't have a group, like I, I'm talking to you brothers here, um, if you're standing by yourself, like then you are the one that people have been waiting for. So, and if you are the one that people have been waiting for, if we are the ones that people have been waiting for, how does my behavior need to change? What will I accept? What will I not accept? Because we are the ones. So um, with that, uh, I want to say, Mr. Charleston Brown, Mr. Emmanuel Stewart, Mr. Joe Truss, I want to thank you all for appearing on Paradigmatic Silences. I love holding conversations with you brothers. It always gets real with the Southeast Alumni Association. Um, <laughs> brothers, I hope we can do this again, uh, whether on the podcast or just, you know, brothers just chopping it up, man. I know we do some texting, but I'm talking about like maybe even some Zoom calls because I do believe just hearing your voices is uplifting for me. Um, and it challenged me. What is that? Iron shopping's iron. Brothers, uh, we got work to do. Thank yes, you. Yes, sir. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you. Appreciate you, brothers. Thank you, Mike. Thank All you, right, brothers, too. Paradigmatic Silences would like to thank principals Charleston Brown, Emmanuel Stewart, and Joseph Truss the Southeast Alumni Black Leadership Association. If you would like more information on Paradigmatic Silences, visit InsideTheMindOfAPrincipal.com and read my blog on The Opportunity Gap and Paradigmatic Silences. You can also follow me on Twitter at Michael C. Essien. Paradigmatic Silences is sponsored by Essien Education Group. Until next time, this is Michael Essien saying, May equity and social justice empower us to speak and act.